I titled the sermon today, The Chosen. The Chosen, I'm not talking about the show. I'm talking about you, Christians. I'm talking about you, church, believers in Jesus Christ. We are in uh, two verses, incredible verses that Peter has written under inspiration of the Lord. And this continues to flow where we left off last week. And uh, so I want to just move through two verses today up close, take our time in these things. I want to begin, though, by just commenting here. I I remember early on at this church, um, at points along the way, people would come and they would say, Pastor, why are you preaching about the doctrine of election again? (laughs) Why is it here again? And what is their deal with this? We don't, we're not used to this. And, And that was the point. Um, the, the, the reality is, is that when you preach expositionally, you just preach the next verse. My job is not to pick a hobby horse and just beat it to death. My job is to preach the verses. And what happens when you move verse by verse through books of the Bible is you begin to catch the emphasis of the word. Not the pastor. It's the, my goal is to put before us the emphasis of the word. And so when the word of God goes to these beautiful, glorious doctrines, we go there with joy and delight and with no apology and no compromise. This is the glorious work of God, and it is good for us to consider it. And what you find as you study the word of God in this way is it comes up again and again and again. And this is not a problem for us. This, I know it's a hard thing to wrestle with. This, this doctrine of election is oftentimes downplayed and skipped over. And I think that's why early on in this church, when we came in 2008, it was so hard for people. They were not used to hearing it as often as the Bible goes to it because previous pastors and years previous to our arrival, it would be skipped over or downplayed altogether. So that's, that's opposite of my call. All scripture, preach the word, right? Preach every verse. And so to the degree that we do that, we will begin to catch how central the doctrine of election is to your life, Christian, to to your joy, Christian, to your confidence in the days ahead, to the way that you look back upon your own story and worship the God who accomplished your salvation. And so... Here we are again, the topic is in view, and don't let any brakes be applied to your soul. Lift the brakes of, oh boy, here we go again, the doctrine, no, no, here we go again. That's what it should be. As we come into these truths, oh Lord, blow our minds with your glory and stir our hearts to worship you, the God of absolute sovereignty in all things, especially in salvation. So with that in view, we are in these verses. They are the very next verses. And let me show you the flow here. The first part of verse 9 I call defined by divine choice. We as believers, as God's chosen, we are defined by this. It's not just a part of our theology. It is, according to Peter here, one of the defining realities of our lives. Something that we should look in and say, Wow, look at who we are in his sovereign work. 9a, I'll, I'll pick up with the last part of verse 8 so you feel the flow and the, uh, the, the immediate context of contrast that Peter gives. 
They, that is, those who refuse Christ in unbelief, that would have been all of us, but for his grace, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Look at that. That is mind-blowing. Notice this. He doesn't say you're a choice race. God isn't looking upon us and saying, well, these people are impressive. Right? Look at how choice they are. No, it's not that. It's you're a chosen. He purposed to choose us, the sinners, the rebels, the haters. None of us in this room deserve to be described as chosen. But you are. Not you will be, you are today, Christian. You are a chosen race. And it's not just individuals here. This is a view to the, the church, the, 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 the whole realm of believers. A chosen race. This language here harkens back to the language of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes people read this in the New Testament and they say, well, that doesn't apply to us. That's just talking about Israel. That is horrible interpretation of New Testament verses. Was it talking about Israel? Absolutely it was. Is it talking about us? Well, according to Peter, according to John, according to Paul, according to Jesus, the answer is yes. So listen to the words in the Old Testament as the Lord describes his chosen, that is Israel, and how Peter now sees in the new covenant the realities of what God is accomplishing, planned of old. This was always plan A. Listen to the connection. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And then he adds this. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God looks upon all of the peoples and he says no to them and he chooses Israel. How does he choose Israel? He chooses Abraham. (laughs) And he says, I'm going to make you a nation. You're a dude. One dude. And by the way, an idolater at that, right? A polytheist. He takes him. He saves him. He calls him and he makes him a nation. The chosen. In the Old Testament. The church in the New Testament is understood now as the new Israel. That's the connection. The same God who doesn't change. Who chose one man to make a nation out of all the peoples on the earth. Is the same God now who is saying, I'm choosing my people. Out of all of the sinners across the world who are running for the fires of hell, I'm choosing you and saving you and making you part of my bride. I'm choosing you, I'm choosing you, I'm choosing you. Now let me say this up front. This does not mean that we are replacement theologians. I want to be super clear with that. Do we know there is a future for Israel? Absolutely we know that. It says it clear as day in the Old and the New Testament. When you were here uh, as we went through Romans, you saw this in Romans 9 through 11. A partial hardening sovereignly by God has come upon Israel. So by and large, there are not very many Jews who are being saved today. There are some, though, who are being saved. 
this is going to be the reality until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then the anticipation is there will be a massive revival work of God such that it can be said all Israel will be saved. That's not the Jews who live in our day reject Jesus and die. They go to hell. But there is coming a season, an incredible just revival, work of God sovereignly that will sweep across the world and massive numbers of Jewish people will be saved sovereignly by God in Christ, their Messiah, who died to pay for their sins. But until that time comes, right now there's a hardening that's been placed by God upon the Jews by and large. And so the church is the chosen people of God comprised both of Jews and Gentiles around the world. The church is what sometimes people call the true Israel or the new Israel. Right now, God is doing a work. And what you see then is, is the language of God's chosen in Old Testament covenant terms is brought largely into the new covenant reality of the church. These promises ring out and they point the same glorious God of sovereignty out, be it in the Old or the New Testament. Both Testaments point to Christ as Savior alone. The law was never intended to save. The law was intended to show the need for the Messiah and then reveal his glorious fulfillment of the law. So in Romans 9 verse 8, Paul says this, this means that it's not the children of the flesh. Just because you're a, a child of Abraham does not mean that you're automatically saved. In fact, it, it, does, it never meant that. It's the children of the promise who are counted as, as offspring. And it's the context here of when God says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. I choose. Who was born first? Who should have been chosen to receive the covenant blessing? Well, Esau. God says, just so you're clear and you understand how election works, I choose Jacob. Not on the basis of works. It was before they were born or had done either good or bad. God says, I choose Jacob. He is the promised child. He is the covenant child, not Esau. In the New Testament in John, the study uh, that we're going to jump into, John 10, this Wednesday, Jesus says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is the fold there? The Jews, right? Other sheep. Who are the other sheep? That's us. I must bring them also. They will listen with the confidence of our Savior. How can he be so confident that we'll listen? Because God is sovereign when he saves. What is the future? One flock, one shepherd. That's pretty incredible. The church, the work of God. At the end of the story, we read this. These are incredible verses of our future. Think of this. They sang, that is the 24 elders and the, and the creatures in front of the throne of God. They sang, worthy are you to take the scroll, Jesus, that is the lamb who was standing as though slain. And open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Jesus ransomed people for God from where? From just the Jews? No. From every tribe. That includes the Marma people. That we are working and laboring so hard through Kathleen's faithful work. And these three translators that we've hired to bring the scripture to them. There will be some from the Marma people who sing 
the greatness of God. He's using us to reach them. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them. Who's the them? That's the chosen, the elect. A kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth with Christ, we would see. This is a certain future, not a hope-filled future. The atonement was a, a clear and, and decisive work, not an uh, I wonder if it will happen or save anybody kind of work. A God who moves in certainty, who saves his chosen and accomplishes all he has purposed. Hmm. So, most often when we are saved by God, we don't understand or even have any idea of all of the things God is doing at the moment of our salvation. But as you study the scripture, you begin to see, oh my word, there was so much more happening that I didn't know about. This would be a good slide to take a picture of, right? And then study through when you get home. This is what I would say the scriptures reveal to us about what all was happening the day that God saved you. And the, 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 the lead up to it. Think of this. First of all, election. This is what Peter speaks of here. You're a chosen people. When did that take place? In eternity past, God the Father unconditionally chose those whom he would have as his own. And then he assigned you a destiny, believer. That's predestination. He beforehand assigned an eternal destiny of holiness, of, of, of love and glory and heaven and life and light and freedom in Christ. The effectual call was the day that the gospel met you. It was the day when you were lost in your sins, dead in the dark, hopelessly unable to save yourself, and you had contact with the gospel. And God called you to life. He called you out of darkness and into life. This happens nearly simultaneously. These things happen quick, like rapid fire. He calls you to life. How does he do it? Through the gospel that is sent to the ends of the earth. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings the life of regeneration. So you're made alive by the Holy Spirit. You're given a new heart. You're given eyes to see. A heart to love Jesus. And you see him. And then he provides the very faith that you need to be saved. You don't muster this up. You don't have this capacity. All of a sudden you have a new heart and you see Jesus with eyes and you love him with the faith that is provided for you. And you are declared righteous, justified in God's sight. Immediately you are adopted into the family of God. You are immediately indwelled fully with the spirit who is a seal as well for your certain future and your inheritance that is to come and the process of sanctification begins in that moment you are positionally made righteous and then you are called into obedience to now leverage and work with the resources of god himself to become who you already are in christ to be holy to obey you're called to obedience and so we walk with god the bulk of our christian life happens in that category sanctification Salvation comes in a moment, sanctification is a lifetime, and it finishes with certainty, Christian. There is no possible way that those who are in the process of sanctification could ever have that lost. 
You will be glorified. He holds you. He keeps you. He sanctifies you as you walk with him. He will perfect you in holiness. And upon the return of Christ, you will receive a glorified body. This body, oh, that's so frail that, that we just experienced even this morning again. The frailties of this fading flesh. This has a future. Not just your soul. Your body will be redeemed from the grave and given immortality. No more perishable. It will be imperishable. Hmm. That's the order of salvation. Christian, God is accomplishing this in your life today. It is a certain reality. Now, we look back and we say, yeah, but I don't remember experiencing all of those different things. I just remember I heard the gospel and I said, Jesus, I love you. I choose you. Save me. Yes, that's real. That's exactly right. But the scripture pulls back the curtain and shows us the glory of God that brought that about. Did you choose him? Yes, you did. Because he chose you. And he caused you to live so that you would see him and see something glorious rather than something that you would hate and turn away from. The order of salvation is a re reality of worship. It calls us in humility to worship. So to say it simply, the only reason sinful unbelievers are rescued from God's righteous and deserved wrath is that God the Father has in eternity past freely and graciously chosen them unto salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the plain teaching of your Bible, and it might be a new concept to you because you haven't heard it taught before, but let me tell you this. I can say this with confidence. I would burn at the stake for this reality. It's true. It's, it's inescapably true, but it's more than that. It's gloriously true. It's gloriously true. This is not a doctrine to be ashamed of. Why would Paul begin so many letters with this doctrine? Why did Peter come out of the gate in the first breath and say, you're elect exiles? It's because this is one of the most incredibly humbling and worship-inspiring realities of your life. It defines you, Christian. You are today a chosen, a chosen person, chosen of God. Humility and gratitude flow from this. The uh, accusation that there are those who believe these things and walk around puffed up in arrogance is absolutely crazy. Let me just say this. If you know people who believe these doctrines and they, they are puffed up because of them, they don't believe these doctrines. <laughs> they, they, they have no clue what these doctrines truly mean because if they did, they would be on their knees saying these words, Who am I? The sinner. The rebel. I don't deserve this. And pointing to heaven and saying, Thank you. This is in your Bible what I would suggest the most humbling doctrine for the Christian to lay hold of and realize. It also inspires gratitude and worship. We praise God. We thank Him for what He's done. We, we, we adore Him for His kindness to us that is undeserved. So, if you are wrestling with these things, it is good. 
It's good. It's partly my job to point these verses to you that, that the Lord would open the door to a deeper humility and a greater worship of the God of all glory. You are, note the word are, you are, not will be, not, not, not hopefully. No, you are. This is true of you today, Christian. You are a chosen race. We together. You are a royal priesthood. Look how he puts these two things together. This is spectacular. The king and the priest come together in these realities. A kingdom and priests unto our God. We reign with Christ. We are royal. Now, there again, because of who we are? No. We are not anything royal in and of ourselves. The only royalty that we know is by grace. We are brought into the line of kingship. How? By faith in the Lion of Judah. By faith in the Son of David. By faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Joint heirs with the King of Kings. And we are described as a holy nation. Now we're going to see how these verses connect. I wanted to put... 10, uh, 9 and 10 here on their own, but they are certainly connected to verses 11 and 12, which we're going to look at in detail next week. The movement from this is who you are, now go live like it, right? Go, go show the world the glory of God by consistently showing forth this obedience, this holiness of the one who called you, a holy nation, set apart, chosen, chosen to be holy. And then this last statement here, you are a people for God's own possession. This is incredible. We tend to think so independently. We're kind of an, a, an independent-minded people here in this country. And there's a lot about that that can be helpful and good. But not when it comes to how you think about your salvation. God created you, Christian. You're his creation. He made you. And he redeemed you. He recreated you in Christ. You've been created in Christ Jesus. He owns you. You are the property of God. You have been redeemed with the, the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own, Christian. So the idea that, that you know, I get behind the driver's wheel and then I get God up here in the front seat alongside me and I say, God, let's go. I'm driving. Right? That, that just doesn't square. Who drives your life? Who do you live for? Who plans your days? Who makes the final call in your decision making on big things and small things? God. You're his. You're not just some possession that he, he puts in a back room. You are a treasured possession. Why? Why? Because of his worth, not because of mine. Before we were saved, we were worthy of the fires of hell. He did not save you because you are worthy. He saved you because he is worthy. He saved you to show his worth. He saved us to make us his treasured possessions, trophies of his grace demonstrations of his power, his faithfulness, his love, and his work. Look at what God can do. That's what we say when we look around and consider the church. 
You this morning today, Christian, are his treasured possession. He loves you. He loves you. There is a gospel that is proclaimed that makes all of this about us. God is just like so fallen over himself in love with us because we're so amazing. And that is just simply not in the text. That we are his treasured possession should absolutely humble us to sing amazing grace. Why does he love me? Look at what kind of God we have. That's his glory and our joy, not our glory. So, God's purpose now for his chosen. God's purpose for his chosen. You, Christian, are defined by divine choice, and there's a purpose to this. Look at the purpose that God has in view as you consider verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Keyword that in your Bible. Circle that or underline that. The that is significant. It's a purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of you. Nope, that's not what it says. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the dark, out of evil and sin and rebellion and death and into his marvelous light. This is the purpose clause of your entire existence. It's why you're here today. It's why we sing, friends. Oh, I, I already heard this sermon when we were singing these opening songs, and my heart was just like, oh, yes, that's so true. I exist to proclaim his praise. That's why I've been saved. Man, I just looked in the lights and I can't see a thing. It's blinding, marvelous light. Christians, we have a God-centered God. Now, I remember when I first heard this, it, it radically altered the entire construct of my Christian life. God is not man-centered. He is God-centered. He delights in himself above all else. And he saves for his own praise. Let me just say this just, just as simple as can be. God saved you so that you would praise him. The reason you breathe the air of life and eternal life in Jesus Christ is not for the praise of you. It's for the praise of God. So the ultimate reason that God saves is not us. That, that's significant. In our day, oh, the man-centered focus and all the we're awesome stuff that happens in churches these days. Even radio station gets lost in this sometimes. It's not true. God is God-centered. He saves for himself. For the sake of my name, for my own name's sake, I defer my wrath, O Israel. I save for the sake of my name. Even in Psalm 23, for his name's sake. The wild beasts will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches 
For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed, God says. For who? For myself. What's the purpose? See the that? Circle it there too. That they might declare my praise. I am confident that Peter is drawing from this passage as he writes these words. The that there is echoing what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before salvation in Christ was revealed. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, this spectacular revelation of God's glory, Paul writes, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in Christ the Beloved. A God-centered people who are to be defined by proclaiming the excellencies of God. Now, that's not just my job, right? That, that's our job. This is the job of the redeemed, the job of God's chosen. You exist, Christian, on this earth today to proclaim the excellencies of God. That purpose doesn't change through all eternity. That's what we're going to do. It's a far more perfectly someday than we do it now. But friends, when we are timid to speak in this way, know this. That is what the enemy wants. He wants quiet Christians, intimidated Christians, fearful Christians. That is not why we are here. We are to be Christians bold to proclaim the greatness of our God. How great is our God? What are the excellencies of God? Oh, the splendor of his manifold perfections. One of the displays of his excellencies is set on display in your life in his sovereign saving of you and to the praise of the glory of his grace. His excellencies are demonstrated when he lights up the sky on your way to church this morning. Did you see the colors? He's he just right behind the sisters as we were driving in. Why does he do that? So that you will be stirred to speak and praise him in a dark and blinded world. He uses our praise to, to, to push the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're praising people, not of ourselves, but of God. Question must arise then. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. I remember asking this years ago. Well, if that's why he saved me then does he love me like I thought he loves me? Like, because I, if it's not really about me and it's about him, does God's God-centeredness diminish his love? His commitment to himself above everything else as the chief glory and end of all things. Even in salvation, does that mean when it says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, does that mean it's not as much? We have to ask this question. If you don't ask this question, you may not be fully realizing how significant it is that God is God-centered. Obviously, the answer is no. The answer is no. It, it greatly enhances his love and displays it. This is how I would say it. God's command for, right? One of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture is praise the Lord. That's a command. 
You ever thought of that? It's a command. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God's command for and then enabling of. He accomplishes it. He doesn't just command it. He accomplishes it in his chosen. God's command for and enabling of our praise of him is his love. That is his love. Think of this. He made us. He wired us up as worshipers. What do we do as sinners and rebels? We turn that instinct of worship to every empty place, every worthless idol. We give our hearts to praise the Seahawks, and we know how that goes. (laughs) But we can pack the house, we can cheer, and we can spill the popcorn and freak out. And then we know at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy. It leaves us longing. What is the loving thing God does? He gives us the focus of what we've been wired up for, and that is Him, the truly satisfying one. We exist to praise God. That's why you were created. Sin turns that and and, and turns it every other direction. God redeems it and reclaims it and then blesses us a thousandfold each day as we do it. God's demand to be glorified and our longing to be satisfied come together in the gospel. John Piper says it so well. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's why he commands it. And that's why he enables it in the power of his sovereign will. He loves us with himself to show us his glory and call us to praise him. We've been called by him out of darkness and death and into light and life. This darkness, let's be clear, this darkness is a chosen darkness. We, we chose this. This is our instinct. This is our will. This is our rebel heart at work. We are in the dark because we like it in the dark. John 3 says, we don't want the light. We love the dark and we will perish in the dark, in the evil, tripping over the dark. I was just thinking the difference between when I first woke up this morning Total darkness. How dark it was. How hard it is to try to see around and even to see when my dog needed to come in. The porch lights were off and poor little guy was sitting out there doing the chihuahua shiver. You know, he finally was like, hey, let me in. Well, I couldn't see him. What do you need? You need light. Life comes with light. All of a sudden you begin to see the glory of God. It's just spectacular what he did here in the eastern sky this morning. The colors, the glory shines in the light. Evil thrives in the dark. That's what we knew. It's who we were. But now we've been brought into marvelous light. Marvelous light. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 remind us of our a state before God saved us. You Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We walked in them. We followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all of us, every single person in this room. We used to live according to the passions of our flesh. We did what we wanted, which was 
We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, willfully and by life-defining reality. We were like the rest of mankind. That's, that's exactly who we were. God's not looking down and being like, look at this guy, he's pretty impressive. I'll save him. No. We were like everyone else in this world, running in the dark toward the fires of hell with all our might. It's who we were. But he called us. He called us out of the dark and into the light. Listen to the words of Jesus. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me... Now, let me emphasize this because I love this, this connection in a sermon like this. Who are the chosen? Those who believe. They are the whoever believes. Not just the whoever. It's the whoever believes. This is the reality. And the call goes to the ends of the earth. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Is there ever anyone who says, Lord, I want to believe in you? And they are rejected? Well, you're not elect. Never once has that ever happened. There is never a sinner who wants to believe in Christ apart from the saving, choosing, powerful, sovereign work of God. The reason we believe is because he chose Jesus is the focal point of this light. Satan blinds our eyes to this light and the glory of God, the one who created, opens our eyes to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, God's unconditional choice. We are defined by divine choice. We are, we are chosen, uh, God's chosen uh, people to proclaim there's a purpose in our existence as those who are saved and chosen. And now, I love verse 10. Verse 10 reminds us that his choice was unconditional. Okay, You may have heard the phrase in theology, unconditional election. That is a truly biblical theology, a truly biblical reality. His choice of those whom he would save is not conditioned upon what he sees in us. It's solely the choice of God. Look at how he looks back. Once you were not a people. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There is a radical difference between once the way things were, and the way things are, not will be, but just already are. What is the difference? God, not you. God. Hmm. Upon what basis did God choose his elect? I, I'm confident that Peter is also looking back to Old Testament passages here and, and taking his cues from the way the Lord chose Israel and made him a nation for himself. For instance, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Think of this. That what, why does he say this? He's making it clear. I, the basis of my sovereign choice of you is not you. It's not because of you. You weren't impressive. In fact, Paul says in the New Testament... Not many of us are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of us are impressive or powerful. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. 
It's not about what we bring to the table. Why did he choose? These verses are spectacular. The answer is simple and incredibly complex. It is because the Lord loves you. It is because the Lord loves you that he chose you. And is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, if you want the answer, Christian, to why you are a Christian today, the answer is because God loves you. Why did he choose you? Because he loves you. But why does he love me? Because he loves me. That's why. The, the, the answer is not in me. He doesn't love me because of me. He loves me because of him. He has chosen to set love upon me. This is not willy-nilly. This is personal. This is decisive. This is I love you. I save you. I keep you. I make you a, a trophy of marvelous grace and bring you into light. This is the same God. The same God who described these things, his way in the Old Testament, bringing forth the full reality in the new as we see the gospel declared to the ends of the earth. So, Christian, what do we contribute to our salvation? What did you contribute to your salvation? You want to know the answer? Nothing. Nothing. You bring nothing. I brought nothing to the table. God did it all. He did it all. He supplied what I needed. He accomplished what I could never accomplish. This is good news. If you are here today and you have yet to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, guess what? There is no amount of goodness that you can try to earn the salvation. You can never earn it. It's impossible for those of us who experience this salvation. We know this. But the good news is that God calls forth the love through His Son and He says, Look to Jesus and believe. How will that ever happen? By grace and grace alone. He can stir your heart today and save you like that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the litany of sins you've committed. If he so wills, he can look upon you and make you alive this morning. My call is to say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Trust him with all your heart. Well, how will you do that? I know that you can't do that in and of yourself, but God can make that happen as I speak. This is how we say it in our statement of faith. God's free gift of salvation is not based upon any merit or initiating work on the part of the sinner, nor is it based on God's anticipation of what a sinner might do by his own will. You know, that's binocular theology. We talked about that. God looks down the corridors of time and he's like, oh, they're going to choose me? Well, then I'll choose them and I'll steal the glory from their choice. That, that's, that's thievery. That's not honesty. God never is reactionary in his saving. It is rather based solely upon the sovereign grace and mercy of God to save his elect giving not only the gift of salvation, but also the means to receive it. This fully eliminates any boast in man and fully establishes forever the glory of God alone in salvation, in the salvation of every justified sinner from beginning to end. We live our lives solely Deo Gloria. To God alone be glory. There's no boast in us. 
And so that is why we worship. It's summed up well in James chapter 1, verse 17. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the gospel, by the word of truth. You believe today because God chose you, Christian. He chose you. He chose to give you life in eternity past. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. This is glorious, and it causes us to stand in awe of a God of grace that would do such to those in this room who don't deserve it. Just think, no one in the history of mankind from the fall deserved salvation. There was only one sinless man. His name was Jesus. And what did he do? He laid his life down to pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. None of us deserve the grace that God bestows through Jesus Christ. What do we deserve? We all deserve the fires of hell. That God saves anyone at all. That's the surprise. That should floor us. That should cause us to sing. How great is our God. Our response this morning, Christian, this morning, I want you to be reminded that you have a God-centered God. He exists for himself above everything else, and that's the best news for us. Because he gives himself freely, bestowing himself to us. We have a God-centered gospel. It is not a man-centered gospel. It's a God-centered gospel that we carry and proclaim. And we are a God-centered people. Increasingly so as we see these things. This has a massive effect on the way we think about our walk with Christ. How we walk this this life out, this Christian life out. Hmm. These are life-defining realities. Christian, it's important that you hear this. You are a chosen people. What an encouragement that is. If he left the choice up to us, no one would be saved. Life-defining realities. These are humility-inducing realities. These realities should stir the most humble responses ever. Oh, who am I, oh God? Why would you save me? Look at your worth. Look at your glory. They are also worship-inspiring realities. Right? That we would declare the excellencies of this sovereign and saving God who shows mercy when it's not deserved and he shows grace upon grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. You can put this on my headstone. I've said this before. When you bury me out back under the trees, I'm not sure if that'll pass in the county or not, but Stick that on the headstone back there. Actually, don't do that. Just send me out to Enterprise Funeral or uh, Cemetery. Put this up there. To the praise of his glorious grace. When you look back upon my life, I want one thing to echo. Mercy and grace. Lavish and free. Bestowed in Christ undeservingly. Look at what he did. This is our song. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight to be your children today. We delight to be the called, the chosen, the, the, the living in the light. And we know, oh God, this is your doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. We thank you for your kindness to us in this way that we don't deserve. We, we thank you for the glory that you set on display in your sovereign will. 
coming to pass in these things. You don't have to save anyone, God. You would be equally good and just and holy and righteous and glorious, but that you would reveal your mercy and kindness and grace and compassion to those who don't deserve it and show it forth in the glories of the gospel. Thank you. We honor you as Lord Jesus. We delight in you as King and and Savior. We, We do so because our Father has given us the capacity, set us free to do so by his sovereign will. Be glorified, O God. We proclaim your excellencies today and every day this week. Accomplish all your good purpose in this world, Lord. May we be the mouthpiece of the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth so that some from every nation, tribe, and language would someday, as certainly will come to pass, give glory to you for your sovereign salvation in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.